2: Hey, hey there, everyone. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos.
0: And I am Scott Schaefer. And tonight on The Breakdown, we sit down with a congressman from Los Angeles who's made it his personal mission to haunt President Trump on Twitter and has become a social media sensation in the process.
2: As evidenced by if you're tagged by him on Twitter you're going to get a lot of responses. The otherwise relatively mild-mannered Congressman Ted Lieu is here with us in studio to talk about Twitter and Trump and other T-words probably, but... First, Scott, let's talk about our own state capitol, where it's uh, been a busy week and a yeah. session.
0: Yeah, there's been some deals cut in the last week or so around charter schools and rent control. But this week, the blow up is over something that seems to have widespread support, at least among Democrats. Uh, and that is Vax, the vaccine bill that has now passed both houses. It's on its way to the governor, who seems to now want some amendments. Uh, and that has a lot of people up there scratching their heads like, why now? Why Why didn't right. we hear about this
2: sooner? So maybe we should back up and explain what this is. So a couple years ago, the state passed this law requiring uh, school aged children to get vaccinated or giving some leeway for medical exemptions. There's a sense that those have been abused, that there are some places where there's very high rates of people opting out, likely not because they medically need that exemption. Uh, This bill is sort of aimed at tightening that, cracking down on doctors who issue too many of these. Um, And, you know, I think you said you're right. In the Capitol, this has become partisan. If you look at public polling, some Something like 75, 73% of Californians think that this should not even be an issue. So it is one of those ones I think we've ignored for that reason in a lot of ways. Yeah,
0: exactly. And of course, the anti-vaccine crowd is very loud. Uh, They actually, one of them accosted uh, the bill's author, uh, Richard Pan, on the streets, I think, in Sacramento a few uh, weeks ago. And it's Republicans, I think, if if it is a partisan issue at all, at least up in the Capitol, it is Republicans who say, oh, it's a personal freedom thing. Parents ought to have more control. Why should the state? It's the nanny state sort of argument. Exactly, And
2: we haven't seen a single person get up and make the argument that the folks chanting in the hallway are, which is that they think vaccines are dangerous and shouldn't be used. But, yeah, I think on the politics side, this has been a really sort of weird issue for Newsom. He cut a deal with Pan several months ago, said he would support the bill, came out with a tweet this week essentially saying no, no, no did what he was talking about. Other lawmakers didn't. Well, and-, and
0: and clearly he is not the governor. He is not immunized from some blowback because he's gotten some really negative uh, editorials, including his hometown paper, uh, The Chronicle, and uh, The Sacramento Bee, and others LA saying Times. LA yeah. Times, wondering, like, what is he doing? He's sort of squandering, in some way, some goodwill uh, up at the Capitol. And uh, people are just wondering, why Why now? What, what took him so long? Why didn't he do this when the bill was in process? And the bill's author, uh, Richard Penn, not happy about it. Uh, And I think there's also – there's almost a a game of chicken a little bit between the legislature and the governor uh, saying, you know, we dare you to veto this. Uh, I mean, they didn't say it in so many words. Uh, But clearly, like as you said, public opinion is very much on the side of uh, the people who want these vaccines to be given to kids.
2: And I think, like, we should say this is a very fast-moving issue. Um, It could change tonight, Thursday. It could change by by Friday. But really – Tuesday's a drop deadline for any new language in any legislative bill for the session. And I think that this speaks to a bigger criticism of the Newsom administration, which is the sort of lack of communication with lawmakers, sort of, I think, a sense on the lawmakers' side that there's a lack of understanding of the process, because we saw similar things with this AB5 debate over the gig economy and contract workers, where Newsom's office has kind of been sending mixed signals about where he's at. He wrote an op-ed on Monday, which sort of I think was a, an attempt to have your cake eat it too a little bit where it's like, I agree with with labor, but I also think the tech company should get something. And I think that just leaves Democrats up there scratching their head about how to make a bill happen that the governor will support. Yeah.
0: And I think, you know, some politicians need to be liked by everyone more than others. And I'm not saying that Gavin Newsom needs to be liked by everyone, but this is one of those issues, the, the AB5 issue around the gig workers that really splits two important constituencies mm-hmm. to him. Labor, of course, wants this bill very much. His friends in the tech community, not, uh, and Uber and Lyft. In fact, both San Francisco companies are threatening a ballot measure. They've each put forward $30 million. Uh, toward, Along with DoorDash, so al- almost a so million. Yeah, almost. Yeah. It's a lot of money. Now, whether that's just sort of putting chips out there to kind of you know, sort of pressure the legislature. We don't know yet. But nonetheless, he's getting pulled in two directions and seems to want to go in two directions.
2: Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of confusion Um, on that one. It's sort of obvious who the constituencies are, why you would be concerned about burning any bridges with either labor or these tech companies. I think on the vaccinations, it's a little more confusing. Who are, who? who is he speaking to here? The or folks listening to. Listening to, right? The folks outside in the hallway who oppose vaccinations, mandatory vaccinations, they're not going to be happy with anything that gets done unless this bill gets vetoed.
0: And he does, you know, he lives in Sacramento, but he's also got deep roots in Marin. Mm-hmm. He grew up there. There's a lot of anti-vaccine folks up in Marin. And so it could be, who knows? It could be a neighbor, right. could be a family member. Uh, but somebody clearly has his ear on this and it has a lot of his allies in the legislature uh, scratching their heads. And, you know, also don't forget, you know, We've gone went through eight years with the legislature very much deferring to Jerry Brown. And I think that there may be a sense now that they need to push back with this guy, this new governor, yeah. uh, Gavin Newsom.
2: Well, and also just because Jerry Brown only entered the fray on a couple of issues, and Newsom has been a lot more willing to kind of stick his neck out there and get involved. And I think that that can be a double-edged sword as he's learning. All right, Scott, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll be joined by Democratic Congressman Ted Lieu. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hi there, I'm Randa Abdel from ThruLine. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer, and we are so happy to be joined by a California congressman who is perhaps Donald Trump's biggest nemesis in the Twitter sphere, Los Angeles Democrat Ted Lieu. Welcome to the Breakdown.
3: Uh, Thank you, Marisa.
2: Uh, Great to have you here. Thanks for coming in. (laughs) Thank you, Scott. (laughs) So we'll get to Twitter and and Trump eventually, but we want to talk a little bit about your life. Um, You've been in Congress, what, uh, five years now?
3: Correct. My but. third term, fifth year.
2: Cool. Um, but before all of that, you were actually born in Taiwan. Um, I wonder, do you know, like off the top of your head, how many people in Congress were born in another country? Are you, is it a pretty small club?
3: It is a pretty small uh, number of people. I am the only member of Congress that uh, was born in Taiwan. And when my parents looked at a map of America, they said, we're going to Cleveland. So Was that, that's a, right. Dar- Just, like, Was that a dartboard situation? <laughs> yeah. or, like, that. I grew up in Buffalo, which is right. the other end of the lake. Ah, but well, but right. you know, yeah, my why, parents were why already Ohio? there. Uh, we had family there from okay. before. And so you see this interesting pattern of immigration across America where different folks go to different areas because they had relatives before them go there.
2: Right. Or often like there's a big. You know, population, of, like my family is Armenian, they ended up in Fresno, right? Like, right, yes. So it's just and like, we, someplace, we, I mean, if you're looking at a map, yeah. it's like... Yeah. <laughs> was
0: there much of an Asian-American community or Asian immigrant
3: community in Cleveland? None. None at all? Uh,
0: now, Besides
1: as the three people uh, you, you know, knew.
3: <laughs> as I got to my teenage years, uh, you started to have some more folks come. What but, was it like being, you know, one of the few? So going through elementary school, I was only Chinese-American and... You know, folks would every now and then say things that made me feel excluded. They would call me chink. Uh, They would, um, you know, use the word yellow. Uh, They sometimes would do things like throwing eggs at our house. Nothing overtly physically violent to me or my parents. But still threatening
2: and upsetting, I'm sure.
3: Yes, it was uh, upsetting.
0: Did that have an impact on you in some way that you carry with you today? I can't imagine it wouldn't. But in terms of the way you look at the world and look at, I mean,
3: immigration right now is such a huge issue, for example. Uh, It did until I got to college. And then I realized, oh, um, it's pretty diverse here. Uh, And actually, growing up, I thought everyone was Catholic. Uh, I was in a Polish Italian <laughs> Irish neighborhood and my neighbors are very nice they would bring over you know kielbasa for <laughs> Christmas and uh, the block was a very nice block um, but when you sort of got out of that and went to school and interact with other kids some of them were pretty mean
2: kids are mean I mean seriously so you guys you came when you were three years old I mean do you remember Taiwan at all uh,
3: no o- only because I've gone back oh, later okay. but not when I was that young
2: so your parents come um, they they sold antiques and other flea market finds, right? To start, I mean, you guys, you were pretty. Uh, yeah, so I don't my know if you were my, poor, my dad but.
3: came first, and he started out uh, as a dishwasher uh, okay. at various restaurants, uh, and then a little bit later, my mom and I came, and my parents would go to flea markets and sell gifts mm-hmm. and jewelry, make ends meet. Uh, over many years, they were able to open one gift store in a shopping center, and then they saved their money, worked seven days a week, opened one gift and jewelry store in the shopping mall, and then my brother and I would watch that store because they didn't have to pay us. Uh, <laughs> and eventually, they expanded over six stores. So in my mind, they achieved the American dream. They went from being poor to a home and gave my brother and I an amazing education, and it's one reason I'm in politics. There's sort of this
0: I- stereotype of you know the tiger mom uh, yeah. Where the mother, Asian American mom uh, pushes the kids to study piano or violin and you know go toward math and engineering. I mean, right. you know,
3: Was your mom like that at all? My parents had absurdly high expectations, but they were nice about it. So it's <laughs> not like they would ground me or anything mm-hmm. like that. But it was uh, sort of embarrassing. I remember you'd have the school, you know, these school open houses or whatever it was, where they would meet the teacher. Maybe it wasn't open house; it was something later in the year. And I get I had an A minus in some course. And they were, like, you know, they were super really a teacher like why I got an A minus of an A. I <laughs> <laughs> was totally embarrassed.
2: So yeah. the teacher, that's interesting. My dad would do that, too, but just to me. Ah, right. um, so, I mean, I think that's not unusual for immigrant kids to end up working at the family business and sort of having to like study behind the counter and do things like that. Uh, what do you feel like? Did that impact, I don't know, your ability to be social in high school? Right. Did, it, did it give you a certain work ethic that maybe you wouldn't have had otherwise?
3: That's a very interesting question. Uh, so, so a large part of my childhood growing up, uh, along with my brother, is we would sell items at the store and try to convince customers to buy various gifts and pieces of jewelry. Uh, and so I got to interact with a lot of different people. What was your line?
0: Like, did you have a, you know, how, what was your go-to
3: <laughs> pitch? Um, it's real jade <laughs> <laughs> <So>. was it <laughs> it was actually, but there's different there's different qualities of of jade uh, so.
2: But, yeah, that that I mean, I assume that that kind of, yeah, instills in you a sense of responsibility that you might not have had if you weren't given that responsibility.
3: Yes. I also uh, operated the cash register, um, so learned to deal with money very early on. But also just dealing with all sorts of different kinds of people because you're interacting with people right. all the time at the store.
0: So you went to, I think, uh, Stanford undergrad, computer science, and then you went to law school at uh, Georgetown. And then you decided to join the Air Force. Uh, Talk about that. What
3: what was it uh, that, uh, you
0: know— Yeah, was that, like,
2: always the plan? Yeah. Uh,
3: So at some point around high school, I sort of came to the conclusion uh, that my parents had achieved American Dream. And this is one of the few places in the world where stories like ours get replicated across generations all over the United States. And it's an exceptional country, and I wanted to— help serve the country and I also wanted to travel and I did Air Force ROTC. I was uh, commissioned uh, uh, at Stanford. At the time, they had banned ROTC, so we would go to San Jose State to do our uh, ROTC drilling.
2: I remember that. I was, yep. I'm was. i a couple years younger than you, but I remember that debate, yeah.
3: How did um, they go over in your family for you to join the military? Yeah, they really didn't understand that. Really? Um, and uh, so the way ROTC worked at that time um, is that uh, you could do one year completely tuition free. They would pay for your tuition, and then you could leave after a year, which some of my uh, colleagues did. Uh, I decided to stay. My parents really didn't understand that. Um, because why? Their, they thought it was like uh, they just didn't see uh, their son being in the U.S. military. But after it happened, they were proud of that fact.
0: Yeah, and you, you know, there's sort of this. Um, I don't know. It's 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 another stereotype about Asian-Americans and Asians generally that, you know, there's an expression like the nail that sticks up gets smashed down. Uh, In other words, like don't stand out too much. You kind of you want to kind of get along. And was that part of I mean, right now, like just fast forwarding to today, you're you're that nail is sticking way up. You know, you're you're getting a lot of attention (laughs) on Twitter going after President Trump. I mean, so was that part of your sort of, you know, ethos growing up? And when did it change?
3: Uh, so thank you for that question. I did not set out to resist this president. Uh, in 2016, after the elections, I issued a public statement that went something like this. Uh, I believe America is an exceptional country. Uh, that's one reason I serve an active duty. One of the things that makes America great is our peaceful transfer of power. Donald Trump won the Electoral College. We should give him a chance to govern. Then a few months later, I concluded I was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) That we shouldn't give him a chance. (laughs) It it wasn't because we disagreed on policy issues. I disagree with some of my own Democratic colleagues on different policy issues. It's because Trump was systematically attacking the institutions of our democracy, uh, their judiciary, their free press. He was stifling internal dissent. And then he was lying at a rate I've never seen another human being lie. And when that happens, my view is that it makes the American people have a hard time telling what is true and what is false. And that's a first step towards authoritarianism. And that's why I decided I'm going to uh, resist him. If he's going to do 37 crazy things a month, I'm going to try to annotate all 37 crazy things.
2: Do you feel like – I mean, I don't know if your family was political at all, um, but you are – Our listeners can probably tell a fairly sort of mild mannered person in a lot of ways. I think there's a lot of people that were surprised having watched your political career first in city council, legislature in California, that you have become this person who's really, you know, speaking back to Trump. I just wonder, like, how do you see that? it sounds like you see that as an obligation and maybe partly because of your personal story, both being an immigrant and, and in the military. But I wonder, like, do you see it as politics? Do you think you're on the far left of the party or do you think it's just that you're being sort of painted with that because you're the one, you know, whacking back?
3: Uh, so I am also surprised that this sort of happened. Uh, it's not something I would have expected. Uh, this is not the way that I um, did things under Obama It's also because Obama, you know, wasn't crazy. Uh, So a lot of what I do now is uh, based on anger. uh, But then I'll count to 10 before I write something. And I hope the president would do that. But uh, it is uh, a view I have that Donald Trump is a genuine threat to our democracy. And we simply need to stand up and say no and to not normalize what shouldn't be normalized.
0: You you use the word crazy. I mean, is that –
3: do you really think – is he mentally unstable, do you think? Uh, so I'm not a psychiatrist or psychologist. I, I don't know. But I know he says crazy things. Uh, and he does really strange things like taking a Sharpie and making a false projection on an official weather map. Adding for a hurricane. Like who does that sort of thing?
2: Uh, if you're just joining us, I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. And we are talking to Congressman Ted Lieu of Los Angeles. Um, so I mentioned before you did run for the Assembly and Senate. You served um, – um, a decade in Sacramento. Um, dolences yes. <laughs> um, No, no, no. But, uh, you know, one thing that you took on while you were there, um, I was sort of alluding to, like, how liberal do you see yourself, was a bill banning con- gay conversion therapy for minors in California. And I know you've always been really outspoken on LGBT rights. I'm curious kind of how you came to that yeah. issue. And I kind of alluded to this earlier, but, like, were your parents political at all? Or are they conservative or li- liberal? Like...
3: My parents were not political at all. They were just trying to survive. Yeah. Uh, And I um, sort of, I think, got a lot of this through high school and college. Uh, So uh, growing up, we really didn't talk a lot about politics. We were just trying to make ends meet. Uh, So in terms of uh, their gay conversion therapy bill, uh, it was the first law in the nation uh, to ban gay conversion therapy uh, for minors. Uh, I have... In Congress now introduce legislation every term to ban it across the nation and every state, uh, including for uh, all adults as well.
0: Well, and one of, recently one of the founders
3: came out as gay, <laughs> which is you know, hurts the brand even more. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, that would hurt their brand. And one of the reasons we did this is a lot of parents are well-meaning. Uh, they may not know that this therapy is a fraud that there is no scientific basis behind it, and that in some cases it hurts the patients. It's caused some patients to become suicidal, to become very depressed. And just to get the information out there that, hey, what these conversion therapists are selling you uh, is false and fraudulent and could hurt your child.
2: No. It, is this something that came from your district? I mean, I know um, you, you Ah, the idea for it. Right. So yeah. I
3: was just flipping channels at home uh, one day and uh, there was a documentary on CNN. It was about the sissy boy experiments. Uh, Anderson Cooper did that documentary. And uh, it was a series of experiments at UCLA uh, in my district where they would do these crazy things to these kids. They would bring them in. And if they were, you know, exhibit um, sissy like tendencies, like playing with girls' toys, the parents were told to ignore them and be mean to them. If they did macho things, the parents were told to be nice to the kids. And they'd all sorts of other completely bizarre things to these kids. And then one day... Uh, this was they, a UCLA? Study? This was UCLA. Uh, this wow. was uh, before people were enlightened. And then they held up a person saying, hey, we basically fixed this kid. Uh, he is um, normal. And then uh, later on, he committed suicide. And I thought, wow, this is an evil practice. So when I got to the legislature, uh, an organization came to me and said, you know, there are these conversion therapists trying to get... Credits for a medical uh, medical credits for teaching this, we should stop that. And so I looked at it, and said I agree with you, and then I said why don't we just ban the whole thing? Mm-hmm. And so we set out to ban the whole thing, and we were able to to get it through.
0: You know, the, you, there are a number of LGBT members of the legislature who you might think you know would be logical people to promote <clears throat> a bill like that. Did, are, do you have anybody in your family who's
3: LGBT? I mean, did you have any personal experience? No, it was actually based on anger uh, <laughs> when I saw what these folks were doing.
2: and That's the second time he said that. Today. <laughs> I don't want to feel and like – I, I, I sound like an angry person. No, we don't you, don't, tri- you don't, don't want to <laughs> trip that but kid. Think, but, but actually I think that that speaks to something, which is that like, you seem to be motivated by emotion. That Like when you see something you don't like, you want to call it out. Um, I wonder at that point when you saw that documentary too, I know you have young kids. I mean, did that play into it too? Uh,
3: I – I felt really bad for all the parents that had yeah. their kids go through those experiments. Um, but you, uh, earlier, I think, was asked, of what do, my, what do my parents think of what I do? And I do remember last year my mom calling me and saying, basically, is it okay that you say these things about the president? Uh, and so my parents, right, did come from uh, uh, countries in Asia, and, and so— you have various countries in Asia where you cannot say these things, right? right? And they are authoritarian. authoritarian regimes. yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, I am just uh, very proud to be in America where you get to say whatever you want. You have a distinction
0: of having run for two different offices against current presidential candidates. You ran against <laughs> Miriam Williamson when you ran for Congress. You ran against Kamala Harris when you ran for uh, attorney general a few yes. years ago. Um, you know, what, what do you make now that, you know, now that you've had that experience? I mean, right. you probably never imagined Marianne Williamson would be running for right. president. Kamala right. Harris, maybe you did. But, you know, looking at those, how that's all unfolding, I know you endorsed Kamala right. Harris really early when she announced right. that she was running. But, you know, what are your yeah. thoughts about that? So Delta?
3: this is where I learned about uh, running against Kamala Harris, which is don't run against Kamala Harris. <laughs> uh, so it's one reason I was uh, her first endorser in Congress. Why do you uh, say don't run against her? Uh, she's amazing. She's a relentless campaigner. She is tough, smart. She's progressive. Uh, she'll make an outstanding president. I've also known her for many years. Uh, we have worked on legislation together, including criminal justice reform. Was
0: there any sort of, you know, hint
3: of awkwardness, you know, after that time you ran against her? I think maybe like a year or two uh, uh, that, that afterwards, counts. but it's been a long time uh, since then. And uh, we have worked together on a lot of different issues. She also happens to be a constituent. So, oh right! Oh and, yeah! And so if she became president, I'd be very honored to have a constituent who was who is so president.
2: That brings me to something which is sort of interesting, which is that you represent one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest, districts in Congress. Um, you come from a middle class background. Is that ever weird? Like, what kind of conversations are you having with constituents? Because, again, to that 2014 race, you were running against a, a very crowded, eclectic field. Let's say, right. and I think you probably were the only one from Torrance, where you <clears throat> live, which is a more middle class area in right. Los Angeles. Uh, so,
3: my district uh, is quite diverse. There are very wealthy pockets in the district. Uh, there's also pockets that are not wealthy. And and so, for example, Torrance, where I live. Uh, We do have a number of Title I schools. Um, We do have other parts of the district that are are not wealthy, and much of it is middle class. Uh, So I'm pleased to just represent a very diverse district.
2: Do you ever get, like, I don't know, pushback from – like, I imagine – I mean, it's a pretty liberal district, but um – I don't know. Like, what kind of calls were you getting around, say, the Trump tax plan, things like that? Like, right. or is does that wealth disparity <sighs> yeah. ever play? Well,
3: so my district wanted to impeach Trump two years ago. Okay. So that's where the district is. Um, and uh, they would much rather uh, have a functioning White House and a functioning president and not get massive tax breaks for the wealthy.
0: Well, where are you on that? I mean, do you feel like you have – is there an op- – some feel in the party that there is an obligation for the House to do its oversight – you know, responsibility to fulfill right. that responsibility. And you can't let this president get away with all the things he's right. done in terms of refusing to, you know, send documents and have witnesses right. come and testify. Like where are you on yeah. all that? How do you see uh, it?
3: So on the House Judiciary Committee, uh, I've been steeped in all these bad things the President has done. Uh, having read the Mueller report, having looked at uh, other documents, uh, it's very clear to me, Donald Trump committed multiple felonies. Uh, He committed obstruction of justice multiple times. Uh, He also uh, dangled pardons. Uh, He tried to intimidate witnesses. Uh, He uh, engaged in a criminal conspiracy to violate our campaign finance laws, one of the reasons Michael Cohen is sitting in prison right now. And it's very clear to me that Trump did these things, which are crimes. Now, what other members of Congress do with that fact uh, it's up to them and their conscience and their districts. Uh, but you cannot escape the fact that Donald Trump committed felonies. But are you among those who say he should be impeached? Uh, so I was one of the earliest to call for an impeachment inquiry. Uh, so, and what's the distinction there? Uh, so uh, inquiry is we are— Investigating. Which we're in right now. We're— uh, deciding whether to impeach the president by uh, continuing to call on witnesses, hold hearings, get documents, and continue and, the investigation. And evaluation. so
0: are you personally undecided about that question of impeachment, or is that just something that, because, you know, Nancy Pelosi has with, you know kind of encouraged
3: members to, of the caucus to withhold that position for now? Uh, uh, that was the case in, until shortly before recess, at which point, essentially, Speaker Pelosi said, you should do what's best for your district.
2: Do you feel... OK, so like we mentioned on Twitter, you are sort of a biting critic of Trump and a lot of his allies. You don't pull any punches. On the other hand, you come, as we noted, from you know this military JAG background. You are a prosecutor like when you weigh this impeachment thing, do you ever feel sort of two sides of your brain, like the political side and the prosecutor side? Because I think that's part of, you know, the the challenge here for Democrats is that it's not happening in a vacuum. There is an election in a year. And you guys are trying to sort of weigh all that stuff along with the facts in front of judiciary. Uh,
3: so having been a former prosecutor, it's very clear to me that the only reason Donald Trump has not been indicted is because he's the sitting president. Uh, There is a Department of Justice policy that says you cannot indict a sitting president, but any other American faced with the evidence against uh, Trump would have been indicted. Over a thousand former federal prosecutors signed a letter saying essentially that same thing. Would
0: you support changing that Department of Justice uh, policy to, to allow sitting presidents to be indicted?
3: I would. Uh, it's, there's nothing in the Constitution uh, that says a sitting president uh, cannot be indicted. I've looked for it. It's actually not there.
2: I know. And Mueller kept talking about it being like a constitutional requirement. I thought that was really interesting. Uh,
3: so Mueller is not going to get an Emmy Award for his performance <laughs> uh, or any other kind of award. <laughs> and he, he did say some odd things, but he also said yes and true to a whole boatload of very damning facts about the president.
2: Yeah. All right, 30 seconds left. What's the favorite, your favorite tweet that you ever sent out or, or, or the one that got the most attention?
3: Oh, <laughs> um, I do like tweets uh, where I keep asking about why Jared Kushner uh, still has a security clearance because there is really no good answer to that.
0: Any tweets you've deleted shortly after
3: you know, having second thoughts? Uh, yes, and I generally explain why I delete them. Um, the ones I don't explain because there's usually a grammatical error. And uh, you see, I shortly <laughs> Your parents would not <laughs> be happy with tweet. that. <laughs> that is such the same thing without the grammatical error. As writers, I appreciate that. All
2: right, Congressman Liu, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks a lot. Thank you. And that'll do it for this edition of Political Breakdown, a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati.
0: Our engineers are Katie McMurrin and Seal Muller. Our leadership team includes Vinnie Tong, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I am Scott Schaefer, and you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer.
2: And I'm Marisa Lagos. Whoever you're listening, please don't forget to subscribe to The Breakdown on Apple Podcast or wherever you find your audio. And while you're there, leave us a rating, a review. Tell us if you like us, what we could do better. Um, What's and your favorite color. Yeah. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at M. Lagos. That is a wrap for this week's Political Breakdown from KQED. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.